0: Good morning, Christ Community Church. It's good to see you guys, and uh, I'm welcoming you who are joining us in Bartlett and Blackberry Creek out in DeKalb, as well as here in St. Charles, to hear an interview with Nabil Qureshi. Uh, I first came across Nabil when I read his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, an amazing spiritual autobiography, Uh, a young man, very smart guy, was on the debate team in university, is uh, now working on a PhD at Oxford, passionate, started out as a devout Muslim and this is the story of his spiritual journey. He's since written two books, one on Isis and a brand new one called No God But One that is also climbing to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. So I encourage you if you're unfamiliar with his writings, pick up one of those one of those books. Now, I was Uh, When I finished reading his book, I was immediately thinking, we got to get this guy for a wow weekend at Christ Community Church. And so we tried, but we found he was booked like a year to two years in advance. And so we finally got a date on the calendar, and I have been looking forward to this for months. And then just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Nabil announced on Facebook that he had been diagnosed with stage 4 stomach cancer. Now, stage 4 stomach cancer has a 4% survival rate. So things are, are looking grim, and he obviously had to, to cancel all speaking engagements, and we were on the phone with him, and he said, I would really, really love to do that while weekend. I'm so disappointed that I can't do that. And we said, well, we got an idea, and uh, we will meet you anywhere, and bring a camera team with us. We'll fly down to your home in Atlanta, whatever. And he said, well, I'm actually headed to the Houston, the MD Anderson Cancer Center next week, And he said, I get there on Tuesday, I start treatments on Wednesday. If we could meet Tuesday afternoon, uh, I'll do the interview, and we said, we'll do it. So this past Tuesday, just a few days ago, I flew down there with a camera crew from Christ Christ Community Church, there were six of us, and uh, we set it up and we recorded the interview. Uh, Took about five hours of Nabil's time to do this. Afterwards, we celebrated by going out for Texas barbecue that was kind of like the icing on the cake, if I'm not mixing metaphors here, barbecue and cake. But uh, it was just a wonderful time. I think you're really going to enjoy this very poignant, very I- impacting video. So with me, would you join in giving Mr. Nabil Qureshi a warm Christ Community Church welcome. Nabil, it is great to have you with us at Christ Community Church. And of course, people have been told that this is uh, this is not live, but we've come down to Houston to have this meeting with you. And the elephant in the room, the big question on our part as we begin this, this conversation is, how are you doing?
1: We know it's stomach cancer and it's severe, but uh, give us an update. Yeah, it was a bit of a shock um, just a few weeks ago, found out, uh, and we went from You know, all our plans, doing all the things that we were going to do, all of a sudden, everything came to a crashing halt. I'll bet. Um, So didn't feel any symptoms at the time except for a little bit of indigestion and some weight loss. Uh, So to get the news, stage four stomach cancer, um, was was a huge shock. Uh, It's been getting a a bit worse. Um, uh, Now I can feel the pain pretty consistently uh, in my stomach. Uh, It's keeping me from sleeping. Uh, My thoughts are probably doing the same thing, too. Yeah, Um, yeah. But uh, learning to trust God and walk in faith in this time and uh, absolute privilege to grow closer to the Lord, um, to be brought on my knees uh, much more frequently um, to to recognize the dependence that we have upon him. It's a blessing in a way. Well, we're going to be talking about
0: your spiritual journey. And uh, this may be jumping ahead of the story, but as it relates to your health, uh, coming out of Islam, uh, what are your Muslim critics say about this you know they the the word is out that you you've got this stomach cancer you know what's the feedback
1: well um, I have known for a long time that people are praying for Allah to curse me Um, one person even emailed me and said uh, I've been praying for years for Allah to kill you And now that we found out that you have uh, stomach cancer, I I kind of feel bad (laughs) (laughs) because I started praying before you had children, and now you have a child, so I feel bad. (laughs) Um, So at least I had one remorseful uh, (laughs) person who said that they'd been praying that. But, yeah, this is something that a lot of Muslims are going to see and say, you know, this is the one who is making a big deal about having left Islam for Christ, and and look, Allah is cursing him. So my prayer really is that through my... Through all this, the testimony of what of what Christ has done in my life won't be won't be uh, dishonored. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, let's go back to the beginning uh, of the story. Uh, you had a very different upbringing than most of us, most who are listening to you at Christ Community today. Your family immigrated to the United States shortly before you were born. Tell us a little bit uh, about that background, where they came from, what the adjustment was like, what it was like growing up in a Muslim home
1: in the United States. Yeah, so my parents are from Pakistan, and they are devout Muslims. They still are. Um, And so what that meant was, growing up, uh, my mom would teach me how to pray the five daily prayers. I remember from the age of three, standing next to my father, um, every day, multiple times a day, as he would recite portions of the Quran, and I'd follow him in the postures. Uh, and the daily prayers that Muslims pray are memorized Arabic prayers, and our family didn't speak Arabic. So we had this very high reverence for the Arabic language. Wow. It was the language of Muhammad. Yeah. Um, and so uh, growing up with all these rituals, memorized prayers, it set us apart. It gave us an identity, and we were really proud of it. Um, I remember uh, during the month of Ramadan, fasting, we would wake up and, and watch to see if the, uh, the moon, uh, actually the day before Ramadan started, we'd wait at night to see if the moon was a new moon, and then we'd tell my mom and, uh, that it was a new moon, and we'd start preparing for the fasts, and every day we'd wake up super in the mor- early in the morning to fast, um, and just that excitement, that air of, we're doing something for Allah. Um, and so that was, that's what I remember of, of my childhood, uh, an identity formed around Islam that we were really proud of and excited about and wanted to learn more and grow into. Wow.
0: Well, now now your folks, you said
1: Pakistani, but very, became Americans. I mean, your dad served in the military, did he not? Yeah, so my father came in the 70s. um, My mother, he married my mother. It was an arranged marriage a few years after he came to America and brought her as well. Arranged marriage? Yeah. yeah, If
0: I had known, I had two
1: girls. I could have done that? Well, yeah, (laughs) you could have. I'm not sure I'd suggest it. Um, But uh, it's worked well for my parents. They love each other so much, and they've been such a good model for us. but, yeah, it was uh, they came to the states. Uh, my father joined the u s Navy um, and I grew up as an American Muslim. I was both American and Muslim. I was wow. taught to be patriotic, yes. um, my yeah. mom was the one who who would uh, tell me that it was my civic duty to vote and take part in American democracy. My yes, father right. yeah, yeah, my <laughs> father taught me to put my hand on my heart while praying the na- or reciting the national anthem, so Islam was not separated from American identity for me okay. it was both okay. together yeah okay well I'm gonna find out
0: right now we're gonna find out just how American oh, Nabil boy. is okay <laughs> this is gonna give us a snapshot I wanna know your favorites in a variety of areas okay, okay? so it's like speed dating first answer comes, comes okay. to your mind uh, favorite food steak not curry
1: not curry no, no. Oh, whoa a good ribeye uh, uh, favorite musical artist Oh, man. Uh, well, in the 90s, I'd have to say The Offspring. Sorry. I wasn't a Christian yet. <laughs> favorite movie? Uh, Lord of the Rings. Favorite sports team? Uh, well, I should probably say the Chicago Cubs. You should I? probably. That is the right. <laughs> there is only one right answer there. Right. <laughs> oh, they're, they're performing admirably, I have to say. <laughs> okay. Favorite tweeter? Uh, probably Church Curmudgeon. Never heard of it. Okay. Check favorite, it out. Favorite leisure activity? Uh, just spending time with my family.
0: Okay, so you really are Americanized, dude. I, yeah. I think that's yeah, it's yeah. part of who I am. Okay, so now help us learn as much as we can about Islam, since that's been your background. What role did the Quran play in your upbringing, the the
1: Muslim holy book? Yeah, so Protestants tend to see the Bible and impute that same notion of the Bible to other faiths, but. Um, the Islamic way of understanding the Quran and using the Quran was much more as a liturgical device or a totem. So we would memorize the Arabic of the Quran, often not even knowing what it meant. You um, had no idea what you were reciting. Quite often. Now, my yes. mother was very specific in teaching me the translations, and okay. so she would. But most of the people around me didn't actually bother to learn the English translation. Just memorizing the Arabic of the Quran incurred blessings for you when, when you recited yeah. it. Um, so. And you had to memorize portions of the Qur'an to pray the five daily prayers. So you have to recite from memory portions of the Qur'an. And that's what the word Qur'an means, recitation. So even though it's a book that Muslims hold as the inspired word of Allah, the word incarnate, if it, as it were, um muslims generally don't go directly to the quran for teaching they they go to their imams and their teachers who then distill that information for them so you're, you're not learning the quran because there are
0: principles that you're going to live by and apply to your life you're just this is i
1: mean it's a little bit of magic right so it, it's it's more indirect than that you're absorbing yeah. those principles from the people from the teachers around you okay. and they Often point back to the Quran, but I didn't know of a single Muslim who would crack open the Quran for guidance and say, "Well, what does the Quran say on this issue?" and then go and find the answer. I I never saw anyone do that. I I didn't know that's dramatically
0: different from how we approach the Bible. Let's talk about Islam's central character, Muhammad. Uh, You know, what part does he play in
1: Islam? Now, and that's a fascinating question because as much as Muslims would not necessarily know it he is more the defining factor of what Islam is than the Qur'an. Um, So the interpretation of the Qur'an is always understood through the lens of Muhammad. The way Muslims live their daily lives are in the pattern of Muhammad. So Muhammad, born 570 A.D., according to Islamic tradition, claims to be a prophet around 610 A.D., when he's 40 years old. And from that point on till his death, it's said within Islamic circles that virtually everything Muhammad did is recorded in tradition, called Hadith. And so Muslims will try to live their lives, devout Muslims, especially Sunni Muslims, will try to live their lives emulating Muhammad. So he's the role model.
0: Yeah. Right, what yeah. did he yeah.
1: wear? How, I mean, the reason why Muslims will often grow their beard to fist length is because Muhammad's beard was that length. He used to shave his mustache, so many Muslims will shave their mustaches. They they wear their pants at a certain height. The more traditional Wahhabi sort of stalwart Muslims will do that because Muhammad was known to not let his pants drag below his ankles. And so to the nth degree, devout Muslims are trying to emulate Muhammad because he is the perfect exemplar of what it means to be Muslim. And so his life is extremely important for the average Muslim. Okay, and so... So Muhammadan is the, uh, the ultimate prophet for Allah. He is the chief of prophets. Okay. The Quran calls him Khatam an nabiin the, the seal of the prophets. Um, and he is the one that Muslims are to emulate. Now, if you ask a Muslim who is the greatest prophet, some of them who are more traditionally educated might be inclined to say somebody like Abraham. Um, because Abraham was what Muhammad said when Muhammad was asked, who's the greatest prophet? Okay. But if you ask a Muslim to respond from the heart, who's, who's the greatest prophet? Hands down, it's going to be Muhammad. Okay. What, so Muhammad points
0: to Allah. What does a person have to do to gain favor, not just in this life,
1: but in the life to come with, with Allah, with, with Islam's God? And, And this is the central message of Islam. The word Islam means submission. And so in order to gain favor with Allah, you were supposed to submit. You do what he tells you to do. And this is why the name Abdullah is so popular amongst Muslims. Abdullah means a slave or a servant of Allah. You just do what Allah tells you to do. Uh, and that's how Islam plays out. If you're going to earn Allah's favor... Do what he tells you. The primary thing are the five uh, pillars of Islam. So you recite the shahada, which is the proclamation that you are Muslim. La ilaha illallah, Muhammad rasulullah." There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. That's number one. Number two is to pray the five daily prayers. Every single day you recite these memorized prayers. Number three is to fast. Fast every um, year during the month of Ramadan. Four is to pay the alms. You're supposed to pay a certain amount of alms called zakat. And lastly is the Hajj, which just happened, the pilgrimage you're supposed to take at one point in your life. Just do it. Allah has told you to do yep, it. You submit yep, and you do yep. it. But then there's also these other rules, again, through the Hadith, that you're supposed yes. to follow in order to be a good Muslim. And the more you do good deeds, the more you submit to Allah, the better your, your weights are in favor of your good judgment on, on the day of judgment. Okay,
0: let me ask the obvious follow-up then. How do I know when I've done enough? In other words, if it's based on me doing the right things, how do I know that I've done enough to earn heaven or what, you know, whatever the Islamic concept of salvation is?
1: Yeah, and what I'm sharing with you is the traditional understanding of Islam. Modern Muslims might tweak this, You know, all kinds of Muslims have yeah. their own specific yeah. beliefs, but the traditional understanding of Islam is you can't know. Muhammad himself didn't know whether he would go to heaven and he'd said, say to people, pray for me that Allah would look upon me with favor. The only way you can really know is if you died in jihad, if you were waging battle for the sake of Allah. Surah 9, verse 111 is known as the, the verse of bargain, um, where Allah says, look, if you give your life for the sake of Islam, then Allah will give you uh, your eternal reward. But that's really the only way you can know. Wow, it leaves one a bit insecure, doesn't it? You, you can never know. In fact, there's a hadith, which is fascinating. Yes. This is the, the second caliph, the one who su- succeeded Muhammad I'm sorry, the first caliph, Abu Bakr. He said, if I even had one foot in heaven, I would still fear the deception of Allah. Wow. In other words, wow. Allah could still wow. throw him into hell if wow. he wanted to. You know what's interesting about what you're saying here? This is not just Islam. It's
0: some versions of Christianity in, in our country where you do, 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 and, you know, we're we're judged at the end of life. If our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, we make it into heaven. If they don't, then we're we're in trouble. And, of course... Genuine Christianity is a whole different system. It's uh, as Someone has said it's not do, D-O, it's
1: done, D-O-N-E, because it's based on what, what Christ is, and, has done. And that's, that's what flips Christianity uh, and puts it on a whole different scale than everything else because within the Christian faith, it's God has done this for you yes. as opposed to you having to earn the favor yourself. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think I'll take the God has done it for me approach. Now, let's go back to your upbringing. You're raised in this very devout home. And as I understand from reading your book, and I, and I do wanna to say to people, this is a terrific book. I recognized it as a New York Times bestseller, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I couldn't put it down as I was reading it. And I hope our people will pick up a copy, uh, not only for themselves, I've passed this on to other people as well, working out with a guy at the, uh, at the club whose wife had an interest in Islam. And she asked her husband a question. So he came to me knowing I'm a pastor, said, you know, what do you know about this? I said. I've got a book for your wife. So gave her a copy of this. So I learned that, that in this devout Muslim household you grew up in, uh, you were taught to see yourself almost as a missionary in your culture. You're to spread the faith. And so you go out in a, a culture where you run into a lot of Christians. And one of the first Christ followers you ran into that began to kind of push back and, and uh, you know, maybe stand up for her faith and share it with you was a girl named Betsy. Tell us about your relationship with Betsy and what you learned about Christianity through her.
1: Yeah, and and this is a great question because I saw everybody as Christian. You know, when when I saw a Westerner, I just assumed they were Christian because that's how we were taught to see people. And so seeing all these people wearing crosses, going to church, but never talking about Christ made me think, hey, these Christians don't actually believe their faith. Mm -hmm. But then there was this one girl, like you're saying, Betsy, who was different because she always had a smile on her face which I thought was really weird. Like, why are you always smiling? Um, she would, she would want to talk about Jesus. And so one day she came up to me in class and she said, "Do you know Jesus?" See, the thing was though that my mom had trained me to respond to Christians who might ask me that. Yeah, yeah. And Muslims <laughs> believe in Jesus. They just have a view of Jesus yeah. that he was a human, that he was a prophet. And this is what I told her. I said, "Look, Betsy." As a Muslim, I believe that Jesus was virgin born. I believe he's the Messiah. I believe that he is going to come back at the end of times. I believe that he's able to do miracles like cleanse the lepers and, and raise the dead and heal the blind. And she had no idea that Muslims believe this. So I said for her, but I also know that he's not God. And she said, no, Nabil, that's the most important part. Jesus is God. Yeah. And I said, well, "What do you do with this Bible verse where Jesus says that He doesn't know when the end of times is? What do you do with this verse where Jesus says uh, that He uh, that it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, or that the Father is greater than He is?" And with these basic questions, I was able to topple her confidence. Uh, and, and and this is what it meant to be a confident Muslim in the context of Christians who hadn't really understood the basis of their faith. So you had fine-tuned your
0: arguments. I mean, you were, you were ready for Christian engagement, but then you graduated from Betsy to uh, a guy named David in college. And the, uh, the debate picked up a little, a little bit more. Tell us how this relationship with David began and developed.
1: Well, and it, it had some of the same thing because with Betsy, I was really excited that at least here's someone who cares about her God. That mattered to me a lot. And, and my respect yeah. for her was, was tremendous, even if she couldn't answer the questions. The same thing hooked me with David. Here was a guy who also cared about his faith. He cared about his God. And so I would ask him questions. I saw him reading his Bible one day, and I said, how do you know you can even trust the Bible? And so we started having arguments about biblical reliability. It, that went to questions about the Trinity. It went to questions about Jesus' deity. Um, and, and the thing that mattered to me was that he would keep coming back. He would keep engaging me. He believed, and his zeal was something I resonated with. So you guys are both
0: cranked up for your faith, and you're having these heated discussions. Um, what did you begin to discover about? Now, l- l- let me, let me uh, scroll through several different topics. W- what did you learn about the Bible as you began to do your own study?
1: Okay, so as a Muslim, I had believed that the Bible was corrupt, that you can't trust it. Uh, it had been changed over time. Uh, and as I started discussing these matters with David, I realized there's a lot of things here. There's, there's the issue of textual integrity. Has the Bible remained the same since it was written? And the answer is we have so many manuscripts that, Yes, we, we, it, it hasn't changed. Um, can we trust what was originally said? There's good reason to think that the disciples uh, and, and secretaries of the disciples wrote down the books of the New Testament. Um, so we have eyewitness accounts. Exactly.
0: First century, soon after the facts. Right, okay, yeah, historical
1: yeah. reliability. Yes. Do, do the things the Bible say, do that ref, does that reflect historical records? Uh, and the answer is yes, time and time again, we see, for example, in Luke's gospel, things being confirmed historically through other means that were stated through the Bible.
0: Yes. Yeah. So you found the Bible to be a a credible book. Did that surprise you? It did. You know, having heard that this is a, this is a book you can't
1: trust and it's inaccurate. And you have to understand everyone around me was saying the Bible's been changed. The Bible's been corrupted. And when I'm investigating it for myself, I'm thinking, where are they getting this from? Why why yeah. are they coming away with these conclusions? And so that begins to open my mind to think maybe there's other things I didn't quite understand.
0: Sure, sure. Y- you know, again, this is not just a um, an Islamic argument against Christianity. I run into this all the time with people. Y- you begin to share Christ with them and they want to know about the Bible and say, but uh, yeah, I heard it's not a very trustworthy book. And they're surprised to learn this is a book that's got a, a lot of evidence pointing to its... A, historical accuracy, and so on. So, okay, go from the bottom. the Trinity. What, what did you discover about the Trinity? What what did you believe as a Muslim, and, and how did that begin to change?
1: Yeah, so in Surah 3 and Surah 4 of the Quran, the Trinity is depicted as polytheism, and so as Muslims... Polytheism meaning? As in three gods, okay. three separate gods, mm-hmm. particularly the Quran seems to indicate Jesus, Mary, and Allah are the three <laughs> gods. Um, but even if you don't go that route, mostly Muslims see the Trinity as polytheism. And that's the unforgivable sin in Islam. To, to believe- Because there's one God. There's only one God. And yeah. if you believe that anyone other than Allah is God, you've committed the unforgivable sin. And so the idea that the Trinity is a viable concept of monotheism, uh, Christians had a really hard time explaining how the Trinity was monotheistic. But I began to realize not only can that be explained, but ultimately, I realized the only explanation for love—and I wish we had more time to talk about this—but the only explanation for love to be a real, objective thing can come if God is triune. Yes. You can't have love be a real thing if God is a monad, the way Islam teaches him to be. But that's because there's nobody to point. love.
0: Be- exactly. Before the creation of of planet earth and human
1: beings there's you know if god's totally monotheistic there's no one to love right so if you have if you have one god who exists as three persons three separate persons that have always loved each other that means love is eternal Ah, love has existed as long as god has existed and so it's objectively real if you don't have a triune god then you have love that is only subjective. It was only something that became real when the world was created. Okay, so the
0: Trinity is beginning to, you know, you're beginning to change your mind a little bit about, what about
1: Christ's deity? So this is the biggest hangup for Muslims. Um, it's, did Jesus claim to be God or not? Yeah. Um, and Muslims believe Jesus is a prophet, uh, but they don't believe he's God. And in fact, the Quran shows Jesus talking to Allah, denying that he ever claimed to be God. And so if you can show a Muslim that Jesus claimed to be God, that will change their perspective of everything. And that was the, the major battle for me. Um, but when I saw that not just Paul says Jesus is God, you know, in, in, in uh, Romans 10, 9, for example, not just Peter saying it in 2 Peter 1, 1, but Jesus claims to be God in John's gospel and not just John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you start seeing it in the pages of scripture, that changed everything
0: you, you got to wrestle with it. So is he, as, yeah, as C.S. Lewis, the famous author, would say, you got, you got to say either he's lying or he's nuts or he's who he claimed to be. But exactly. you, you cannot evade the claim. you got, you got to deal with the fact that he, he's either who he said he is or he's not.
1: And, and for Muslims, he, that he's lying or that he's nuts are, are, aren't viable options. Yeah, yeah. So if he claimed to be God, it's a game changer for him. Okay, how about this one? What Jesus
0: accomplished on the cross. How did that change? from, you know, you're wrestling with this as a Muslim. What did you learn about what was
1: accomplished So as a Muslim, I used to challenge Christians by saying, how does one man dying on the cross pay for the sins of everyone? Isn't that like me walking up to the president and saying, here's a dollar. Let's cancel the national debt. Like, it doesn't work. How does that (laughs) mathematically work? Um, But when I realized, when I tied in the Christian doctrines together and realized this isn't a man trying to pay off the debt with a dollar. Mm -hmm. This is God himself who has an infinite bank account able to pay for the sins of everyone. That I realized, wait a minute, the question I should be asking is not, can God pay for the sins of mankind? It's, would God pay Uh for the sins of mankind? And as a Muslim, the answer was no. But as a Christian, the answer is, yeah. God's the only one who can pay for your sins. And that is a beautiful, beautiful belief
0: okay and that leads me to one more here you're you're having all these discussions these debates with David what are you learning about the nature of salvation you know how
1: is a person saved what is salvation yeah it became much more of a thing to rejoice over which is what Jesus tells us right in Luke chapter 10 Uh, don't rejoice the demons submit in your name rejoice that your names are written in the book of life Uh, this is something that clicked for me later Uh, I remember well after I had become a Christian, just calling David on the phone one day, I was like, dude, we're going to heaven. (laughs) Do you realize how awesome this is? Um, Because up until then, just as a Muslim, you're thinking, did I, when I'm fasting, did I make sure I didn't accidentally sip any water while I was in the shower? And you're constantly spitting or you're constantly asking God for forgiveness because you, you must have sinned somehow, or did you accidentally forget one of your five daily prayers? And just this constant anxiety, did I do enough, wow. did I do enough, did I do enough? And here you are, as a believer in Christ, thinking, thank you, God, Wow. that I just get wow. to love you as a child loves wow. his father. Wow, Nupil, what,
0: during this time, this is college, right, that this is going on, this debating with, with David, um, what kept you in the game? you know, continuing to seek. I mean, why don't, why don't you just blow it off and say, okay, you got your view, I got mine. I mean, what, what kept you seriously considering the claims
1: of Christ and Christianity? See, Muslims in general, but especially, you know, devout Muslims believe Islam is true. Especially if you come from an Eastern background, it's, it's not just, hey, you believe what you believe, we believe. It's we are proud that we are following the true faith. Allah sure. has sent Muhammad yeah. as the chief of the prophets. The Quran is the inspired word of Allah. This is true. That's why we believe. Yeah. Um, so it's not a feel-good faith like a lot of people <laughs> in the West have. Um, yeah. And so when someone challenges you and says, no, no. The Christian faith is true. That keeps you in the game, especially if they keep winning the arguments. (laughs) Then you're like, how is this possible? How are they able to outwit the truth? And so for me, that's what really mattered. But also it was my friend, right? David was my best friend. And so I couldn't get away from this. It's yeah. not like uh, you know I could just ignore the arguments. There he was every day in class yeah. or yeah. afterwards hanging out. Yeah. And so I was confronted with these facts and issues over and over and over again. There was no way around yeah. it. I, I got the sense from
0: reading your story in, in Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, that you guys had a deep friendship. That you guys really loved each other. Is that would that be accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that I could see how that would have a have a pull kind of keep you looking. At the the same time you're investigating truths about Christianity, you're finding out some disquieting truths about Islam. You know, talk about about that. What are you discovering about the faith you've grown up with
1: that is beginning to maybe shake those moorings just a little bit? Yeah, so Islam is something that's very oral. It's a religion that's taught to you orally. Like I said, people don't generally pick up the Quran and study it for themselves. They receive it orally from their teachers or from their parents. That's how they learn Islam. Well, when you do that, when you teach something orally, you're by definition teaching them something selectively. You're, you're not giving them the whole story. And so when David and I started investigating how to prove whether Islam or Christianity was true, and we turned to the Muslim faith, I started reading the early stories of Muhammad's life for myself, hmm. instead of just receiving the stories, reading from you know, beginning to the end. Doing your own investigation. And that's when yeah. I came across yeah. all these stories that no one had shared with me before. Things that made me think, why am I following this man? Wow. Uh, everything that I had heard up until then had been very positive. But now I'm hearing stories about you know, him being uh, bewitched, him uh, beheading hundreds of people on the same day, uh, him doing, you know, treating women in certain ways. Nothing that I'd ever heard before. And naturally, I kind of said, no, that can't be true. That can't be true. Uh, but what I later realized was this is coming from the same sources that all the positive stuff that I had learned came from. I have to take it or leave it. I can't selectively cherry pick my profit. And when I came to that realization, it was, it was a real earthquake for me. Wow, so
0: you're learning all this truth about Christianity that is very intriguing and, and it's attracting you. You're, you're being repulsed a little bit by some of the truth you're learning about Islam. So what was keeping you from saying, I think I'm going to move from this camp to this camp. I think I'm going to become a follower of Jesus. I mean, was it just, I had one more intellectual doubt that had to be satisfied first, or were there other things going on that were keeping you from, around Christ Community Church, we call it, making a decision of surrender to Christ.
1: What was keeping you from surrendering to Christ at this point? This was a decision that would cost me everything. My entire family, all my friends, the future that I had planned out, um, it would change and cost literally everything. Um, Nobody left Islam in the circles that I grew up in. Um, And my mom being the daughter of a Muslim missionary and my father being one of the leaders in the mosque, uh, if their one son became Christian, I mean, not only would that make me sacrifice all my social circles, it would drag them through the mud as well. It's an honor-shame culture, and for your only son to become a Christian meant your reputation was gone. So am am I willing not just to do this to myself, but to my parents, who've done nothing but sacrificially love me since I was a child? Um, Am am I willing to go to hell if I'm wrong? Because the Quran says, if you believe Jesus is God, you will go to hell. Mm -hmm. Chapter 5, verse 72 of the Quran. Am I willing to, to wager that? So all of this, and of course, there's the law of apostasy in Islam, which is that if you leave Islam, you can be killed for it. Uh, my family was part of the most pacifist sect of Islam, so I knew they weren't going to. But there had been others uh, around me. Um, and in New Jersey that very year, a whole family who had left Islam had been martyred for I it. So, yeah. So would I be willing to give up all that? All this cost, I'm not thinking on the front of my head, hey, I'm not going to become a Christian because of this cost. Yes. This is happening subconsciously, and it's keeping me from seeing the truth. Okay. So
0: we know from the fact that you're sitting here that you made that decision So what brought you to the point of overcoming those roadblocks and eventually saying, okay, Christ, you're going to be the savior. You're going to be the king of my life.
1: If there's one thing that Islam, a devout Muslim learns from his Islamic faith is that it is that God is the most important thing. And with that in mind, my friend kept pushing me, saying, Nabil, are you choosing your parents over God? Are you choosing your life over God? Um, and I had to. At some point, I came to realize, yeah, if if I don't actually ask God to show me who He is, then yeah. it's because I'm trying to protect myself. And so I prayed and I said, God, can you show me a vision or a dream? That's how our family always prayed for guidance from God. My father always received received prophetic dreams when I was a kid. Um, and so um, I asked God for a vision or a dream. And through a series of visions and dreams, He pointed out to me that Christianity was true. Um, but that even wasn't enough either. Um, then, I, then I asked God for a little bit more, um, and he led me to the pages of the Bible. Uh, and it was in the scripture. As I started reading the Bible for the first time, and I say the first time because up until this point, I'd read the Bible only to try to argue yes. against it. Yes. But for the first time, I'm reading the Bible for guidance. Yes. And it was like, literally, life. It was yeah. like the yeah. living yeah. Yeah. word. Yeah. Um, electric, Yes, Um, and it was in the pages of scripture that I ultimately decided to make the the step.
0: You know, I I was talking to uh, a woman at Christ Community Church in our Welcome Center just last week, and she said, you know, when I came here a year or so ago, I was in a dark place, and I knew you guys were really into the Bible, and I, I picked this book up, and I started reading it. She said, I read for five hours one day, And then she proceeded to tell me how she was brought into a relationship with Christ, but that, you know, the Bible, God's Word has that transforming uh, effect on us. And just a, you know, promotional word I wanna say to our congregation at this point is, uh, next week, next weekend, we start a series uh, that's meant to get people into the Bible, reading the Bible, we're gonna do four weeks from the Gospel of Mark, one of the biographies of Jesus, and uh, I know that's a, a book of the Bible near and dear to your heart. It's my favorite. It, yes, yeah. Well, we're going to get people into the gospel of Mark and also just get them into reading the Bible. So, uh, but coming back to your story, you made this decision. You said you feared the cost ahead of time. Your reluctance was due to what it might cost you. Did it cost you what you thought it, it, it would? What would have been the costs of
1: following Christ for you? Yeah, our family has never been the same. Um, never been the same since. And when I say our family, it sounds kind of nebulous, but I'm thinking my mom, her personality was changed forever by my decision to become a Christian. Um, my father, his confidence was shaken forever because I decided to become a Christian. Uh, they didn't come to my wedding. They didn't approve of, of, of me getting married. Um, it's, it, our family has, has never been the same. Um, I lost all my friends, uh, the social circles that I was a part of, um, and ultimately, the Christian faith, it just radically altered me. So everything has changed, but wow. the cost immediately was, was pretty much everything.
0: Now, you, you are following a profession of telling people about Jesus. I mean, that, th- th- this is what you do for a living. You speak, you communicate, you write books. And, and by the way, uh, Nabil's not only got this seeking Allah finding Jesus, but answering jihad. Is this the most recent
1: No, no God. Okay,
0: no recent. God. But one, and uh, you mentioned to me this is a good book to give to Muslim friends who are wrestling with the issues of of uh, Muhammad and Jesus and the this Quran. One I wrote about.
1: specifically for seekers.
0: Okay, so you make you make a living at communicating the good news of Jesus. So you must run into people all the time, not not just Muslims, but people who grew up either with no faith at all, didn't grow up going to church, or uh, maybe they grew up Catholic or Baptist or Methodist or whatever, but it was an external ritualistic, go-to-church kind of faith, not a deep personal relationship with Jesus. What do you find as you engage these people, what are the biggest obstacles that keep people from making the decision you made,
1: surrendering their lives to Christ? What are the biggest obstacles? I would say obstacle number one is wealth. Um, It's people who are very self-reliant, people who are very successful. Uh, They feel like they don't need God. They feel like they don't, uh, they don't need religion. Yeah. Um, and so uh, pride is one of the hardest things to combat when it comes to showing people their need for, for a savior. Yeah. Um, so that's number one, I think is wealth. Number two, I think is comfort. Yeah. Um, to follow Jesus, Jesus said literally that you have to pick up your cross and follow him. That means you have to be ready to give up anything for the sake of Christ. Yeah. Um, and we have just told everyone in the West that the number one thing to seek is comfort. Um, get the more comfortable house, get the more comfortable car. You see billboards that say, you deserve a meal from Wendy's today. I mean, that that kind of thing is what we've been telling everyone. Um, And what that then means is to to, to follow Christ. Anytime you refine anyone, anytime you improve anything, it means stepping out of your comfort zone. It means being willing to suffer. Uh, A diamond, it becomes a diamond by being put under immense pressure. Um, and it's only then that it becomes released into something beautiful. Yes. Um, and people just want comfort, uh, and that I think is the number two biggest detractor from people accepting the faith. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell you, when you talked about wealth and talked about pride, the
0: downside of having a faith where it all depends on God is is that it could seem so easy that you know, no, no, I got to do something to contribute to this. Mm. And, and we like to think that we can add to what Christ has done as opposed to humbly saying I'm broken and I can't fix myself and only you can. So I see how pride especially you know, gets in the way. Let, let, me, let me turn that question around and we're, we're kind of bringing things to a close, but uh, if there are roadblocks, there are also good reasons to compel us to get beyond the roadblocks because rejecting Christ has a price tag too. Oh yeah. J- just a surrendering <laughs> to Christ it, it, there's a cost involved. Rejecting Christ there's a cost. What what is the cost? Because I'm sure there are people listening to us today who are saying this is good, not interested. This is fine for Nabil. But I think we got to put it on the line and and say, "Okay, but if
1: you walk away from this, this is what it what it will cost you." What what is that? I would give two here as well. And the first one's probably the obvious one and that is uh, your eternal salvation. Um nobody can earn their own way into heaven. I don't care who you are. You could be Mother Teresa. You can't earn your way into heaven. You can't be good enough. Why? Because heaven is a perfect place. It's because God's presence is there. His presence can only abide in perfection. And none of us are perfect. Um, And so it's only by what Christ has done for us and receiving what he has done for us that we can then, by his righteousness, enter into a place of perfection. So that's one but also number two, so that's, that's you know the next life. But on this earth, um, people are lost, spinning in circles, trying to figure out, why am I here? What's my purpose? What am I here to yeah, do? Yeah. The answer has always been built into going back to the Trinity. We've been woven in love. This whole universe operates in principles of love. You have to lower yourself and serve others. You have to be humble enough to love others to ultimately receive purpose. But you're only going to get that in Christ. So why were you made? Why do you have the passions that you have? Why do you have the gifts that you have, the skills that you have? How do you make it click? You make it click by realizing who God has made you to be, why he gave you these talents, these desires, and then living in that purpose. Yes. And so by giving up Christ, you're giving up the purpose for which you've been created, uh, and the way you can live life to the full, as Jesus says in John 10. So you're giving up the afterlife, and you're giving up this life. Okay, so now pull
0: it all together. You're getting me excited as you're talking about it, and I've I've been following Jesus for years, but uh, it just gets me pumped up to talk about what it means to follow him. So if, if people are sitting out there listening to you right now and saying, okay, I'm in, just tell me what I I need to do. What what are the steps? How would you explain to them what they need to do next to begin this relationship with Christ?
1: Absolutely. Well, read the Gospels, understand who Jesus is. What he calls us to do is to repent. We have to repent, and this is not a popular word these days, but the fact is that we've all messed up, and we all know it. Um, And to ask God into that, to follow Christ, particularly... I'm going to back
0: you. Repent means what? Because we've just seen the silly looking guy with the street corner sign that yeah. says repent.
1: Repent means? Repent means to ask God to forgive you of what you've done against him. Okay. We've all rebelled. Uh, to ask him sincerely and then to turn around from doing that, to stop doing it and to say, God, I want to follow you okay. instead of following my own heart. And I guarantee you, I don't care who you are. When you follow your own heart, you follow it down into the depths of depravity. Yeah. Um, but to repent is to turn back okay. into the light towards God. And then to follow him. And what does that mean? That means, you know, when Jesus says, forgive your enemies, uh, love your enemies. It means to follow him when he says, give to the poor. It means do what Jesus says, follow him and receive uh, the payment he's made for you. So uh, repent, receive the payment. God has died for you. You deserve to die, really. And we all are heading towards death. And this is why people always ask me the question, why do I deserve to die for having done something wrong? Look, God is the source of all life. God is the source of life. And if you rebel against the source of life, you have incurred death. Sure. It's a mathematical transaction here. Yeah. And for God to say, I love you so much, I'm going to give you life anyway. Receive that yes. through Christ. Follow him and live this new abundant life.
0: So repent, recognize that true life's found in Christ, and surrender to him. And follow him. And, and follow do what him. he says. Yes. Yes. Don't, don't yes. forget yes. that part. Yeah. Do what yeah. he says. Yes, Yeah. Well, Bill, thank you, especially on the eve of beginning some uh, uh, medical procedures here. Uh, our prayers are with you. Thank you for carving out time to meet with us. Um, I'm sure that you've connected with many of our listeners who are wrestling with spiritual things, and maybe today is the day some of them will begin to follow Christ as you've made that decision for your own life. Thank you so much. It's
1: a privilege, absolute privilege to be able to share the good news in Jesus. <laughs>
0: That's powerful stuff. And I, I think the thing that has impacted me as I've watched it on video a couple of times now is I, I just remind myself this guy was less than 24 hours away from undergoing the first stage of treatment for a disease that's got a you know, 4% survival rate. And he obviously wanted to do this interview. He, he really wanted to communicate the truth about Jesus. He really wanted you to hear what he had to say so that you, you too could make a decision, as he made 11 years ago, to surrender his life to Christ. You, you don't have to be coming from Islam to Christianity. It, it may be you're coming from an unchurched background and you've just never truly surrendered to Jesus. It may be that you've grown up in a church, in a Catholic church, a Baptist church, an Episcopal church, a Presbyterian church, and you've had it up here, you know, but it's never it's never made it down to your heart. Someone has said that the uh, longest distance in the world are the twelve inches between your head and your heart, and and so I, I want to give you an opportunity that Nabil, if he were here in person, he would give you the opportunity to make a decision for Christ, and and I recognize that a lot of the interview had to do with. Uh, intellectual things, questions, uh, truths about Christianity, and, and that's not as, as much a uh, heart-moving sort of dialogue. But, but perhaps that's been the obstacle to some of us coming to faith. We just didn't think the Christian faith was that reasonable. And and today, you're understanding, yeah, it makes good sense. It makes good sense why I can't win favor on my own before God, but Christ has done everything that needs to be done. See, the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. You know, the penalty for us choosing to go our own way instead of God's way, you heard Nabil say it a moment ago, you know, when you rebel against the giver of life, the penalty is death. And when the the Bible talks about death, it's not only talking about physical death at the end of this life. It's talking about stepping into eternity and being separated for eternity from the God who gives life. And we got to do something to fix that problem in this life. And, And the fix is a fix that's been offered by God. He sent his son, Jesus, to take the death we deserve to die. Not just to come to earth and be a good role model, teach us how to love, but to culminate his earthly ministry by giving his life on the cross, a life of infinite worth, and, and so it can apply to anyone who surrenders to him and says, "Yet yeah, this is what I want. I want the forgiveness that you purchased on the cross. I want the new life that begins when I put my hope and trust in you. You know, the Bible says that when you surrender to Christ, God's spirit comes to live on the inside. Changes are made. Happens from the inside out. The eternal life that he gives begins the moment you put your trust in Jesus. So what I'd like to do right now is give you the opportunity if you've never done that before. And you you probably know for yourself, in fact, if if you're wondering, I'm not sure if I have or not, it's probably because you haven't yet. So nail it down today. I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer and at our other campuses, I'm going to ask the campus pastors to lead in this prayer, giving you an opportunity right now to pray from your heart a prayer of surrender to Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? If you've never prayed something like this before, I ask you to join me in saying, Lord God, I am a sinner. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't think things, say things, do things that I know are offensive to a holy God. Can you say that? There may even be specific instances that come to you to your mind. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a, a sin that you're addicted to. Maybe it's a flare-up, something you've done that's disappointed even you that comes to your mind. Can you say, God, I get it. This has separated me from you. I've gone my way instead of your way. And God, say this from your heart, it's not the words that matter, it's the heart. Can you say from your heart, and God, I recognize that the penalty of my sin is to be separated from the God who gives life. But God, I want to thank you that you sent your son Jesus. You did something that no other world religion promises to do. You sent your son to take the penalty I deserve. He died on the cross for me. Can you make that connection? Does that make sense to you today to say to Jesus, thank you for dying for me? And so I want to put my hope and trust in you. I want you to become the savior of my life. And as we are bowed before God, Nabil also said that one of the things that keeps us from making this surrender decision is that we just don't want to give up control. We, we, we don't want to, as Jesus told us to do, pick up the cross and follow him. And so I'm going to ask you right now, from your heart, can you say, and Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to get off the throne of my life, and I want you to be made king of my life today. Now, if this prayer is resonating with you, if you're saying, yeah, this is, this is what I'm praying, and I'm meaning it, I may have praised something like this before, but I'm not sure I meant it. Today, I mean it. I really want the forgiveness. I really want the new life that Christ offers. Sometimes it's good when you're making a decision like this, a spiritual decision that nobody can see you make. You can't even see yourself making because it's going on in the inside of your heart right now. Sometimes it's good to do something physical something demonstrable that says, yep, this is what I'm doing. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do right now as you're bowed before God. If you prayed this prayer of surrender to make it a memorable moment for you so that you wake up tomorrow and you say, yes, I did something that changed my life yesterday. Here's what I want you to do. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to stand to your feet for one second and then sit back down. It's a really simple thing. And yet it's a way for you to say, I prayed it and I mean it. Would you do that right now? All across our auditorium. Want to see people? Yep. See you stand up, sit back down. I know you feel glued to your seat. Good. Anyone else? Keep going. Just right now, this is my way of saying to God, I mean it. I put my hope and my trust in Jesus. Someone else? Okay. Good. Anyone else? Up in the balcony, down on the main floor, You know, obviously the standing up and sitting down is not what makes you a new person in Christ, but it's a way to say this decision is genuine. It's real. I mean it. Anybody else, just quickly to your feet and back down again. Lord God, I want to pray not only for those who stood and sat back down, I want to pray for those who in their hearts, they know they prayed that prayer for whatever reason, just couldn't get to their feet. But God, they know that they want Christ to be the Savior and King of their lives. And I pray that this would not just be a blip on the, on the radar, a passing fancy, you know, a moment when they were moved that has no repercussions in the life to come, but that this, this would be something that changes them dramatically, God, that this would be a genuine decision. And for those of us who've made this decision at some point in the past, God, stir us to recognize how important this is to live our lives in full followership of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.